There's nothing like preaching to a packed house. <laughs> On behalf of the people and clergy of St. Luke's, if you are visiting, passing through, came in the door and said, I, d I d didn't know this was still a church, seeking whatever, at St. Luke's, you're welcome wherever you find yourself on your spiritual pilgrimage. And those of you who are here all the time, I'm very glad that you're here too. And you're welcome on your spiritual pilgrimage. I happen to know a little bit about some of your spiritual pilgrimages and, you know, it's an honor. Episcopalians uh, don't have to rely on the zeal or the ability of the pastor to craft the services they celebrate. I'm so grateful to be part of a liturgical church. The idea of during Easter to have to get up and make this up is absolutely hair-raising. <laughs> I mention this because every year on Easter I think it's important to say some things about what the Episcopal Church has to offer what we have on offer and for us, and certainly at St. Luke's, our public worship, our public prayer is central to our self-understanding. We believe in the ancient Latin maxim. Seems kind of funny, doesn't it, that the English church has Latin maxims that govern their thinking, but, you know, there it is. Who said it had to make sense? Lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of prayer is the law of belief. What we pray, we believe. There's another thing that we believe too. Actually, if you were to ask somebody, as an Episcopalian, what would you appeal to as authoritative in looking for some way that we understand uh, the Christian faith and life? And we have three things. The Bible the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. We believe, however, that the uh, church is prior to the scriptures. Let me say that again. The church is prior to the scriptures. And that means that our practice, our prayer, our community faith and life, our reflection on the deep things of Christian faith and belief and by extension what it means to be the best human being that you can be precede the compilation and putting together of the biblical witness. So there is, to be sure, a reciprocal nature of, involved here, but we believe as Episcopalians that the Bible is true and some of it happened. So what I thought I'd do is what I always do, and that's to speak to you about the fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy. The great 50 days of Easter informs the whole of the Christian liturgical year. And it provides for us the themes both for our corporate life and for our personal, internal, spiritual struggle and affirmation as we move forward and is a source of strength and a source of insight. During Holy Week, I mentioned that a wonderful book I refer to all the time by Father Thomas Keating called The Mystery of Christ, The Liturgy as Spiritual Experience. 
and he says that throughout the Christian year, in all of the great days and seasons, there are three major theological issues that are always present to us. The divine light, the divine life, and the divine love. And we see that played out in our public prayer and worship, and as we seek to unite ourselves with it, we begin to see and connect to the divine life, the divine light, and the divine love that is within each of us. Father Thomas Keating is the author of that remark, We are not God, but our true self is God. And so as we come to seek and know better God's will and purpose for us, we touch that threefold aspect of the Godhead. The great vigil of Easter, which we celebrated last night, is the ground zero of the liturgical year for Christians. And there are four things that are involved in that service that come up throughout the year but are put together uh, in a particular form uh, at the great vigil. The first is the presence of the light of Christ symbolized by the Paschal candle, which will stay now in the sanctuary until the day of Pentecost for 50 days. And it is the symbol of the light of Christ, the risen Christ, the illuminative processes of God that are at work in the community of faith we call the church both externally to show us the way institutionally for how we can be God's people in the world, and it is also the illuminative processes of God at work internally, showing us the way, showing each of us personally and individually God's will and purpose for us, and that the divine light is always present. Father Thomas Keating would say when we say, divine light, divine life, divine love, they have certain meanings in the way they play themselves out in our ordinary and commonplace living. The divine light is wisdom. And it isn't wisdom about academic things or particular expertise with regard to the way in which we understand complexity necessarily. Wisdom, certainly practical wisdom, is the accumulated knowledge that we have gained in dealing with the challenges and the opportunities that have been in front of each of us on a daily basis. And so you both now become more apt at coping, but you have something to recommend in relationship, and if you have learned something from practical wisdom, you will bring health and wholeness to your relationships. The divine light has something to do with the maturing processes of God's Holy Spirit. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. And so we might be able to say that maturity is taking responsibility for your own emotional being and destiny. That doesn't sound very religious. <laughs> oh, it's very religious. Trust me on this. So the light of Christ reminds us that these illuminative processes are available to us 
And we can either through uniting ourselves and gaining insight from time to time, even in our public worship, which can seem very routine, and in listening to the practical wisdom of others, we learn something about how God works. The second piece to the great vigil of Easter is an extended reading from the Old Testament literature, the Hebrew Bible. And in it, we read about the history of salvation. Remember, the early Christians said to themselves, when they, the eyewitnesses who heard Jesus, saw Jesus, were witnesses to his mighty works and listened to his teaching, said to themselves, you know what? If we had remembered and consulted our own holy scriptures, we would have seen embedded in them the prediction that he now was going to come, the unique focus of the divine presence. And by virtue of this, we have also learned something else. That while we, as a community of faith, believe in Jesus Christ as the unique focus of the divine presence, this divine presence has been always here in the hearts of all faithful people and in the community of faith. And so God has always been faithful. God has never left. And God now comes to us in a way that brings the illuminative processes of God. Those early Christians who compiled their holy scriptures said to themselves, you know what, if we connect the dots, we've learned something else. And that is that the history of salvation that we read about in the Bible are stories about the community of faith, the people of God. But we also know that we are part of the people of God. And so perhaps our own personal history is part of the history of salvation. Who you are, what you do, where you came from, and where you're going is important to God. And God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness is something that is now available to you to discover that you have a real part to play in big and small ways in God's plan for the cosmos. So the history of salvation, which we will now continue on, is present certainly in the Hebrew Bible and in the stories we will read from the book of Acts where the early church now begins its life subsequent to the events of Pentecost, with the descent of the Holy Spirit. The third part of the great vigil of Easter is baptism, or the renewal of baptismal vows, which we will do in just a few minutes. And the renewal of baptismal vows is a reminder of the covenanted relationship we have with God, and it is a reminder that what Jesus Christ is by nature, we become through adoption and grace at our baptism, and now have all of the powers, all of the ability to be God's people in the world, and to give full meaning, force, and effect to Father Keating's comment, we are not God, but our true self is God. So when we renew our baptismal vows or celebrate baptism during the great 50 days of Easter, we are welcoming, welcoming people now into the body of Christ 
that we understand are part of our common life together, but also individually share in the promises of God sacramentally, the outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, the means of appropriating and making part of our own personal history the deep things of the promises of God. And finally, we celebrate at the Great Vigil, as we will too, the Holy Eucharist. The ways and the means that you and I receive the spiritual food and drink and the strength week to week to be able to go out and be God's people in the world and to labor in the wider world to make a society where it is easier for people to be good. And so the concrete ways that we understand the Eucharistic life are perhaps one of the ways we touch this particular divine center. Father Keating says that the divine life, after the divine light, is empowerment. So when we get empowered, we're able to be God's people in the world. And that God's love, seen in the sacramental life of the church, is the power to transform. Over the last uh, couple of months, I have been reading a book. I, I can't recommend it as, uh, as a popular book. Uh, if you want to read it, you would, it would, you'd be repaid. It's by a phil Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. And it's called A Secular Age. Uh, in academic circles, you'd probably hear some introduction if he was speaking like, Charles Taylor is one of the six most important philosophers working today. <laughs> he, he's describing how we got from, he, from here to the, there to here. What he calls a secular age and the processes that are involved that he would refer to as disenchantment. And so while there's uh, apparent widespread non-belief in this culture, there is something that he describes that is important because I think it has to do with our own holy longing and the commercial message that I'm making to you, of course, is that in our public worship and in the sacramental life, we see a way in. Here's what Charles Taylor says. We all see in our lives and or the space wherein we live our lives as having a certain moral and spiritual shape somewhere in some activity or condition lies a fullness, a richness that is in that place, activity or condition. Life is fuller, richer, deeper, more worthwhile, more admirable, more what it should be. This is perhaps a place of power. We often experience this as deeply moving, as inspiring. Perhaps this sense of fullness is something we just catch glimpses of, 
from afar off. We have the powerful intuition of what fullness would be were we able in that condition, were we in that condition, for example, of peace and wholeness, or able to act on that level of integrity or generosity or abandonment or self-forgetfulness. But sometimes there will be moments of experienced fullness, of joy and fulfillment, where we feel ourselves there. Every one of you have had that experience at least once, even if it's for a split second. And it doesn't have anything to do with religious categories. The religious categories, the tradition that embodies our common life together as Christian people, for Christian people, can be now a source of intensifying this idea of fullness. All of us wish to have some touching of the fullness of God, some touching of being one with the universe, some deep understanding of our will and purpose in the world, some deeper and fuller understanding of our vocation, some way in which we can make a difference. The faith affirmations of Christianity tell you that that is already so. But you know what? As we grow up, we learn something, and that is saying doesn't make it so. So you need to figure out how you're going to do this. And one of the ways is to make a commitment and to say, you know what, I'm going to live some kind of life of intention. The Easter celebration is about somebody who lived an intentional life and somebody who becomes now the unique focus of the divine presence. And by extension, you and I uh, get to share in that divine life by virtue of that, the fullness. St. Paul in the Greek text, when he refers to this, calls it the pleroma, which is a word that has a lot more depth than we, we say in England, in English. Maybe in England they say it too, I don't know. But pleroma means fullness. So celebrate and give thanks for any kind of fullness that you have ever felt. That is the resurrection life. My former bishop for many years, William Swing, used to say, you know what, I believe in the resurrection because I have experienced the resurrection in my own life. I have experienced some species of transformation, new life, and new birth out of death. And by virtue of that, I feel better. And I feel also that I'm able to commend that to other people and ask God to help me be an instrument of making it more present than it is. Amen. <laughs>